Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. We're solution architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hi everyone, it's Dr. Pete here and welcome back to AWS Tech Chat. Uh, I hope you guys have been having fun um, and uh, certainly I hope, Shane, you've been having fun yourself. I absolutely have. I've uh, been mountain biking on the weekend, Pete. And I think you came off. Did you get hurt? Yeah, pretty much. I think uh, I realized that my my talent isn't equal up to my ambition at the moment. That's not cool. So did you break anything? Obviously, you're looking... uh, you know, plaster-free, so... Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sore, though. <laughs> well, let's not do too much of that, huh? It's, uh, make sure you get enough safety on, safety gear on. So, guys, welcome back. I hope you've enjoyed the previous episode. We've had uh, a lot of fun making these. Um, the pivot to video and Tech Chat TV um, has given us a fair bit of feedback, so uh, we will continue moving on with that. Uh, in, the next, in the next few episodes, uh, you're going to start seeing more videos. We're going to release more of the live streams that we had at the Sydney Summit. Um, but I think, Shane, you've got a joke for us. Yeah, so, Pete, I thought we'd start this podcast <laughs> off with a joke. So, don't worry, it's a good one, I can assure you. So, Pete, mm. why do Java programmers wear glasses? Good question. Why is that? Because they don't see sharp. Ah. We need, a, we need one of those pre-recorded drum, drum, drum Dong. beats. Yeah. <laughs> but... Um, well, we won't subject you to too much of this. Uh, I know uh, some of the Alexa jokes can be <laughs> somewhat interesting. Um, so, Shane, I'm just sort of curious, um, you know, what have you been up to lately? So, look, my jokes may stink, mm-hmm. but for all you developers out there, Dev Days is a global series which is just around the corner. Mm-hmm. It provides a full-day technical event where developers can learn, you know, about some of the hottest topics in cloud computing. Mm, and that's coming uh, to the Australian cities like Melbourne and Brisbane, and I believe they're uh, kicking off on the 7th uh, and 9th of August, respectively. So Melbourne first, Brisbane second, right? Yeah. But we're also in the summit season. So uh, we're in the month of May at the moment. Um, Shane, what is happening around the planet well, at the moment? Because we've got a lot of listeners from around the globe. We do, and it was great. We were just having a look at the diversity of our listeners here today. So we have events in Mexico City, Mumbai, Dubai, London, Stockholm, Madrid, and Benelux in Japan in the month of May. That's a lot. That's a heck of a lot. It's a lot, yeah. yeah. And speaking of listeners, you know, we, we did actually do a, a bit of a dive deep into the to you guys to better understand where you guys are coming from. And uh, while the top listeners are coming out of places like Australia, the UK, uh, India, Canada, United States, um, Germany, New Zealand, Japan you know, uh, Singapore, Netherlands. Um, we actually thought we could also look at some more unusual places where you guys are tuning from. And uh, that's like uh, Argentina. Bermuda. Yeah, you know, Nicaragua. I, I don't know anybody there, but uh, hello to you guys out there. <laughs> Maybe, uh, uh, Pete, my uh, distant relatives in Malta are listening. Yes, yeah, so we've got a few of those guys there. So it's it's pretty impressive how our little, little podcast that we started here in, uh, in out of Australia has gone global. So guys, uh, thanks for tuning in. Really, really appreciate uh, you guys you know, lending us your ears, so to speak. And um, yeah, give us some more feedback. Uh, we've received, like I said, a fair bit around um, the video side of things. So uh, yeah, look out. There'll be a lot more cool stuff coming your way. So Shane, in the tradition of Tech Chat, um, what's new? Whatever, what's out there? What have we announced? Uh, anything that's really noteworthy that you want to call out well, in the uh, expansion space? There's plenty, but you know, some stats changes. So we still have the same number of regions at 18 and the same number of availability zones at 54. 
But CloudFront has added a third edge location in Singapore and a second edge location in Taipei. That's cool. So what this really translates to is reduced customer latency as because every CloudFront location that we add um, reduces the latency in which applications are served around the world. Yeah, I'm a big fan actually of Lambda at the edge, you know, where you can do some extra computation to these edge locations. Yeah, you so, can yeah. manipulate headers, etc. Yeah, change cookies and a whole bunch of cool stuff. So yeah, very, very exciting. And what about um, uh, our friends in the uh, the Gov space? We've added a second AWS GovCloud region in the US. And speaking of GovCloud, we've added a third availability zone for GovCloud. Because that's the existing one, yeah. So we have yeah. actually been, uh, you know, while we're all sleeping, uh, the, the, the teams of back of house have been busily building out more kit. Mm. And what about some instances? Because we always add new and modify things. So what's well, happening in the uh, in the world of new instance types? So in the instance space, do you remember our H1 instances? How we, can I forget? It's we, uh, announced at, uh, you know, reInvent, yeah? Yeah, in 2017. Well, you know, these instances, perfect for, you know, Storage optimized, so for things like big data and data-intensive workloads like MapReduce, MapR, etc. Well, we've just had another price reduction, and they're now 15% cheaper. Awesome. So how many price reductions does that bring us to? That is 66 price reductions since AWS has launched. That's pretty cool because these price reductions generally, like when we reduce them, it's because we find that uh, you know it's passing on the savings to our customers and because we design and OEM our own hardware, so our compute and storage, um, networking, all that stuff that actually sits inside of uh, our regions uh, is custom built. Yeah. Um, so, so it's very impressive. Pete, um, you know, in putting together the notes for this show, there was something that just popped out today, and I think it's you know something that we absolutely need to talk about. Yeah, and that's actually the um, this is around CPUs for Amazon EC2 instances, and that's around we've announced something this ability to optimize your instances. In other words, when you launch an EC2 instance, you generally look for a t-shirt size instance which has X amount of memory, a certain I.O. profile, as well as the number of vCPUs, so the virtual compute units. Um, and what we are now actually have uh, done is give you the flexibility to actually uh, resize the number of virtual CPUs that you can associate with the launch of an instance, which is pretty cool, Shane. So it's, for those customers yeah. who've uh, unfortunately, are uh, stuck with perhaps some uh, old legacy licensing models for databases or um, other applications, or perhaps where some applications that you've maybe brought into AWS Cloud um, don't really benefit from things like hyper-threading um, and you know all of the modern functionality of, uh, uh, of of the cloud and the current CPUs. You can now actually reduce the number of vCPUs you associate with a particular instance. Yeah. So look, I've worked in uh, roles before where you know you may have this humongous database engine mm -hmm. that you know requires you know high memory, high storage I/O. Totally. But it may not be CPU bound. Correct. So you know this is really a game changer for those scenarios where you're you know effectively license locked. Yeah, spot on. So, for example, if you have an X1 for extra large instance, which offers offers you basically 16 vCPUs by default, you can now launch an X1 for Excel with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, yeah. <laughs> eight, nine, so seven, eight, ten, twelve, and fourteen vCPUs, uh, which is kind of cool. So this actually allows you to bring your own license. Uh, and to make sure it's optimized exactly to what you've signed up for with your vendors uh, around CPU, CPU licensing to your particular you know, technology, whether it's a database or a custom app. Uh, because yeah, believe it or not, many companies still uh, license the software around cores and yep. CPUs and hyperthreads and uh, a whole bunch of interesting stuff like that. 
So I think it even gets better because, you know, depending on how much testing you're doing, you know, a lot of customers out there will, you know, test their applications with and without hyper-threading enabled. So, mm-hmm. you know, changing number of threads per core. Yeah. So, Pete, tell us more about that. Yeah, so look, so you might find some workloads like, you know, high-performance computing uh, applications that are really not designed for hyper-thread, uh, you know, calculations. So those kind of compute-intensive workloads uh, actually can sometimes find there's a performance degradation due to a large context switching that actually happens within the silicon. So you, you can actually find under some situations, it's, it's, this isn't very often the case, but there are some, there are edge cases where you will actually find that uh, you can actually find it's slightly worse performance if you actually have those features enabled. So a lot of the time in the past in your own data centers, you may have actually manually had to go into the BIOS and reconfigure the actual hardware and uh, only expose certain amounts of uh, you know computation or virtualization at, at the silicon yeah. level. Uh, this is us coming closer one step towards um, you know to, towards doing that uh, to make sure that our customers are getting the best yeah. value out of the EC2 platform. I'm smiling, Pete, because that is exactly what I've done in the past. Yeah, <laughs> I think we all have. <laughs> Put your hand if you've done it too. Right? I'm sure lots of hands are going to go up right now all, so, around, all, around, all around the planet. Something to note, though, that these CPU optimized instances will have the same price as full size EC2 instances of the same size. Yeah, very important call. Yeah, so guys, yeah, even though you are spinning up an instance and you're reducing the number of uh, uh, vCPUs, we still bill you for the actual size of the instance that you've launched. We just turn off uh, those additional cores and hyperthreads uh, that you may actually uh, not require to be compliant with your licensing. Yeah, and I think just one more tidbit of information. Um, you know, the CPU options that you specify persist after you start, stop, or reboot an instance. Yeah, yeah, very, very important. Yes, so be aware of those. Uh, yeah, but so this is only at launch time. Now, speaking of all new things, uh, we don't just do it at the uh, EC2 silicon hypervisor level. We also do it in things like Beanstalk. And yeah. Beanstalk is one of my really favorite services because that's one of the ones I cut my teeth on really early on in the past. Where I loved being able to package my apps, push a button, deploy it, and have it auto-scaling out. So Shane, what's new with uh, Beanstalk? It actually has had a whole bunch of new improvements, which I think are really fascinating. Yeah, and look, as you said, most people cut their teeth with AWS on, firstly, maybe via Amazon EC2, but mm-hmm. eventually, you know, we know that hand cranking is only going to take us so far. So, you know, as you start, you know, building more complex environments, Beanstalk is not often a really great place to start. Yeah, it is. So, but also what, what I often find is yep. many of our customers who just get started, um, they'll launch a Beanstalk deployed application and they'll start turning off the instances and we automatically auto, auto, auto recreate them. So it's uh, yeah, just a call out to those who are new to AWS. If you do play with Beanstalk, uh, yeah, tear down the stack. Don't just delete the instances because the auto scaling will try to recreate those missing instances that you've been turning mm. off. And look, I think just a level set, you know, for those of our listeners here who aren't familiar with Beanstalk, Beanstalk's, you know, it's a really easy to use service for deploying and scaling web applications and services on AWS. So, you know, you simply create an archive, you upload your code, you know, to, it could be .NET, it could be PHP, it could Node. be Java, yeah. Ruby, etc. And Elastic Beanstalk will automatically handle deployment for you from capacity planning, load balancing, auto scaling and health monitoring. So it's a really handy service. Yeah, and it's, it's also cool because it, you can, it also supports Docker, by the way. So it's not just uh, package your apps um, and push them up. You can actually literally Dockerize them and uh, Beanstalk supports Docker as well, yeah, which is so, nice. So what's uh, new with Beanstalk, Shane? Well, I'm glad you mentioned Docker there, Pete. That's a backstory. So, so 
Docker. So Docker is running on containers. You have multiple containers running on a host. These containers p- potentially are listening on specific ports. Mm-hmm. So what's new with app- with Beanstalk is Beanstalk now supports application load balancers in addition to classic load balancers. So getting a little bit technical here, and hopefully you know we all are familiar with the OSI model. And a traditional load balancer will operate at the layer four uh, section of the OSI model, you know, which is you know concerned with protocols and ports, like TCP/IP predominantly. Yeah. Right? yeah. But application load balancer operates at layer seven, meaning it has access to HTTP and HTTPS headers. Mm-hmm. And armed with this information, it can do you know a much more intelligent job of spreading the load out to its targets, which really translates in the ability to use Beanstalk for more modern architectures. Which is like what content-based routing, I presume. It right? is. So you know, if you had uh, you know a website, um, Shane's fantastic website.com, <laughs> you could have forward slash. API, and that could go to one target group, mm-hmm. or you could have forward slash mobile, maybe to another. Um, and so hang on, so what's a target group, by the way, for those that don't know, what's, what is a target group? A target group is a list of servers that mm-hmm. will be load balanced to. Got it. Okay, so with the content-based routing, you can actually route different types of requests yeah, to different, different groups, and those groups and then auto-scale independently. Yeah, so look, previously, you might use a third-level domain or a subdomain, so you mm-hmm. might have, you know, it could be API dot I think Shane's fantastic website mm-hmm. or mobile.shane'sfantastic website. But now you can just do forward slash API or forward slash mobile or insert your uh, name in there. Cool. And the other you know, function of the application load balancer, what it brings to the table is support for WebSockets and HTTP too. So, awesome. So what, what, what are those two? What's the difference? So WebSockets is going to allow you to set up that you know, long-standing running connection between client and server. So you know, potentially... You might be might have in the past designed an application where you need to refresh the page periodically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you can use WebSockets, um, you know, to deliver like a stream of information over a very long period of time. Yeah, it's quite handy for basically doing things like you know notifications, right? Where ever so often, you know, you want to get poked by the server back and saying, "Hey, there's something new. Go and grab it and go process that." Yeah. So, so that's a, yeah. For those of you who are familiar with WebSockets, that's often you instead of typing HTTP or HTTPS, you'd go WS slash slash or WSS for secure a protocol connection. So mm. that's WebSockets. What about HTTP2? What's the difference there? So HTTP2 is a significant enhancement on HTTP 1.1. So there's new features available in the HTTP2. What a <laughs> tongue twister protocol. But uh-huh. look, in essence, you know, it reduces network traffic and it does that because it supports multiplex requests. You don't have to be, you know, you know, creating all those GET requests. They can be multiplex together. Yeah, that's no, a really handy feature. And also the ALB is designed for, you know, really handling, you know, real-time WebSocket, you know, high-volume traffic, um, you know, to actually accelerate that to the edge. Yeah, and know. look, really, all this needs to happen at Layer 7. Yeah, awesome. All right, so talking about load balancing, I believe, Pete, there are some changes to the way auto-scaling works. Yeah, so for those of you who may have missed it, we have a service called AWS Autoscaling, not to be confused with EC2 autoscaling, uh, like what you may have experienced in Beanstalk when you spin the thing up. So the idea of uh, AWS Autoscaling is that you know, it introduces the ability for you to do uh, autoscaling of your application uh, as a whole. So quite often, you know, if you have a target group, as we just spoke about, uh, those target groups may point to different autoscaling groups 
for your application. Uh, and they'll independently of each other scale up and down, perhaps based upon CloudWatch metrics. If uh, the servers get too busy, you spin up you know, a few more instances. When things get a little bit quiet, we turn them off. Uh, with um, AWS auto-scaling, what that means is you can actually scale the entire application in one go. So the, the, the cool thing about uh, what we just done here with this is that uh, you can now actually scale based upon resource tags, which is very, very cool. So for those of you who are familiar with tagging, uh, and uh, I'm a big fan of tagging, tag everything you possibly can in AWS with things like you know who the owner is and so forth, because those things can appear in the programmatic bill. So you can do showbacks and chargebacks mm. to your team. But also now, tags, uh, they have lots of other uses, but in this case, you can now auto scale based upon uh, the discovery of uh, of those tags, so that we can you can go into the actual console and say, "Hey, AWS auto scaling, please scale up everything that has a tag called Shane Super Duper Awesome Website." Yeah, so you can re- do it related to the application. Correct. So this basically doesn't just affect EC2, but it also affects EC2 spot fleets, DynamoDB tables, and the global secondary indexes, and also things like. Uh, Amazon Aurora, as well as things like ECS. Uh, and so a lot of stuff is now controllable um, uh, you know, through a whole bunch of things. So if you want to do scale some of these things, um, you certainly need to go through uh, and tag it. Or the other one is, you know, if you use the service, you can also go through CloudFormation stacks that have been deployed. Uh, and those CloudFormation stacks can actually be then uh, discovered by the service and it will figure out what should and perhaps should not be scaled. So it's a pretty nice new feature to make sure that uh, instead of going into lots of different independent uh, scaling groups, which make up your entire application, you just go to the one single place, go to the dashboard, and scale the entire application, which is pretty damn cool. Amazing. Yes, so listen, yeah. Yeah, and look, for those who are looking for AWS auto-scaling, you can find it in the console under the management features. Yes, good call out, because it doesn't jump out at you sometimes. So guys... um, some other cool things, and that is AWS Private Link. Shane, what yeah. can you tell us about Private Link, which well, is a really cool feature that I'm a big fan of? Private Link is awesome, Pete. And you know, for a solution architect who's in the field, Private Link is having you know a really big impact on how customers create modern architectures. So tell me about how does that actually impact my network design? Well, you know, typically if you are you know architecting your AWS services. Mm-hmm. You may have multiple AWS accounts separated by perhaps multiple AWS VPCs. Sure. Or you may be peering with a third-party organization who is also on AWS. Like a SaaS provider. Yeah, for sure. Plenty of those around. So, you know, typically when you do VPC peering, you need to expose your entire VPC. Yeah. So, Private Link really changes this completely. So, now customers can privately access AWS services from their Amazon VPC. Mm-hmm. without using public IPs and without having traffic to traverse the so internet. So how do we do that? What's the trick? Well, we expose endpoints via ENI, so elastic network interfaces, inside your VPCs. Okay, so that means that you can have an IP sitting in my VPC, which actually happens to be an endpoint for somebody else's services. Correct. In another VPC, in another account elsewhere. Yeah, and we, AWS, are managing the translation between this. Perfect, and that also means that we can now spin up AWS services inside the VPC, right? Correct. And, you know, you may have noticed that a lot of our services are starting to have private link endpoints. And today, what is really great is simple notification service now has the ability to leverage AWS private link. That's nice, which means you don't have to go via NAT gateways or traverse anything outside of your VPC. It's private, just like S3 endpoints, right? Exactly right. Perfect. Perfect. 
So another cool service that we've also got is uh, Aurora. Uh, do you use Aurora, Shane? Do you use it much? I use Aurora. I actually uh, migrated my personal blog from uh, MySQL into Aurora, and it was completely transparent. You know, being uh, MySQL or Postgres compliant, mm-hmm. change your connection string, and the application, you know, is completely transparent to it. Yeah, well, I'm pleased to say, for those of you who are already using Postgres um, and on Aurora, which is one of our flavors of Aurora, is that uh, we now give you the ability to do a fast database clone. So if you've got um, uh, the, the actual database running and you actually want to clone it for whatever purposes, and quite often that would be to maybe uh, run some reports off it or perhaps uh, create a, a, a copy of your live database for dev test experimentation, um, we can actually now do this um, Live. So, so in the past, you often would do yeah. it during a quiet period. Uh, the beauty of this is that you can clone your Aurora database with just a few clicks through the RDS management console. There's really no impact to production. Right. No impact to production. No so impact. Typically, yes. in the past, when I, you know, clone a database, yep. I'm going to have to, you know, quiescence the disk I/O. Yeah. I might need to do it during a low time, you know, yep. in order to um, prevent an issue with disk I/O. Yeah. So because of uh, the way we design a database, uh, we take a copy. Uh, of one of the other databases that are running behind the scenes, uh, which means uh, you are not impacted with that. So, uh, th- and the other cool thing about it is that when you actually clone, the clone operation does not incur any additional storage charges. So, you, essentially, you can create as many database copies as you need, and only pay for the instance hours used. So, uh, you basically, you only get charged for additional storage capacity only if you make data right. changes. So, so if the you don't delta the data, um, that's all you pay for, okay. which is which is perfect. You know, yeah. you only pay for for actually for what you use. So, you know, calculate your rate of change on your database engine and that will influence your storage space. Woohoo, is that cool? That is pretty cool. I think this though, Pete is even cooler. You know, being a bit of a developer at heart, yeah. I think both of us here, <laughs> SSM and yes. ECS. So Simple Systems Manager and our you know, EC2 container service um, uh, basically uh, give you the ability to do basic spin up you know, your own containers. Um, and one of the things that you know, customers often want to do is always run the latest version of the Amazon machine image, which has the agents in that. Um, in the past, we actually used to have an SNS topic, which you could subscribe to. So you could subscribe to in each of the regions to ECS-Optimize-Amazon-Amy-Update. And whenever we made a change to the Amy, you could actually receive that. Um, but we also found that sometimes if you didn't listen to the notification, you might have missed it. So the other way of getting that was to actually uh, look it up somewhere. And the AWS uh, Simple Systems Manager has something called a parameter store. So what you can do through the CLI is to actually query the parameter, and we've actually exposed the parameter for the um, Amazon Linux, Amy, that we actually recommend is the latest, which is very, very cool. So if you do a CLI and say AWS SSM get parameters and get the name under AWS-services, ECS optimized-Amy slash Amazon-Linux slash recommended, that's a mouthful, you will actually get a JSON uh, payload back telling you uh, what is the latest AMI that you should be using when you are spinning up your um, instances. And in fact, the parameters was really cool because you can also now get uh, the latest Windows Server uh, Amy names. So if you go to slash AWS service slash Amy dash Windows dash latest slash, we will actually tell you what is the Amy name for Windows Server. Say things like 2016. Uh, and we, obviously, as you guys know, we have you know a vanilla base, one with da- a database in it. So you can actually look those up. So it's a really clever, smart mm. way uh, of being able to actually 
find out what is something that is latest. Quite often customers in the past have maintained their own strings somewhere in S3 or in a database that actually had a reference to the Amy's for uh, the latest thing that they were using. Um, so do, please do consider yeah. the parameter store to actually be a place where you can actually store those things. Yeah, you can effectively change your architecture from a push, you know, using SNS, you know, and if you're not listening, you're not going to get, you you're know, miss out. you're going to miss out to more of a pull where you can query the uh, SSM parameter store. And realistically, you can tie that probably into your, you know, CICD um, build process. Yes, you should. It's you actually should. a really great use case, Shane, whereby, you know, if you are building lots of automation, you definitely want to make sure you are, you've got a place somewhere where you control all, all of your parameters. Yeah. Uh, in fact, you know, it's, it's a really wise thing to consider using it for feature toggling and feature switching. Uh, so for those of you, these are things that you may want to turn on or turn off uh, in your systems so as just because the code's been built doesn't mean you want to expose that feature. So you could actually use the parameter store to then quickly look up whether you, whether you should be actually exposing that kind of a UI perhaps to a user uh, to either enable or disable A-B testing um, if you are kind of operating that model. So super cool, uh, great place to look things up. Um, go check out the actual documentation to find out what the actual uh, parameter store prefixes are in a tree. Uh, but yeah. having said that, um, that's all about data. Shane, there's something really cool um, around open data sets on AWS. Yeah. So, Pete, how often are you writing programs to, you know, to iterate through large data sets for purposes, you know, ranging from training to building models? Um, I'd like to say not often enough these well, days, but in the past I have. Yeah, it's, look, it's been, you know, the big data problem has been uh, interesting for me because uh, while sometimes I had a big data, it was, it was kind of like small data. Uh, so I would have loved to, in the past, got my hands on some really large, huge, in fact, data sets. So in the past, uh, I used to spend a little bit of time writing programs to train models that are created against a historic stock uh, market uh, Are you showing prices. us your, your stock brokering side? Right. right? <laughs> you know, I was going to create this application that would, you know, tell me when to sell, when to buy, and potentially auto-trade. And, you know... One of the biggest issues was getting data sets of information to train my models on. Yeah, it's tough. So introducing the registry of open data on AWS or Rota. So, so what is Rota, Shane? Okay, so Rota makes it easy for people to find data sets that are publicly available on AWS. And what would that be? Is there like a, like a domain I can go to to look this and find them? Absolutely. You can go to registry.opendata.com. AWS in your browser. Okay, and what, what am I going to find now? What kind of data sets are available to me? Uh, there is, pl I'll say plenty of data sets. I think it's close to about 50 okay. data sets, you know, ranging from genomic, satellite, imagery, transportation. Um, you know, I spent a little bit of time on this website and I could spend a, a lot more time browsing through the data sets. Mm -hmm. You know, there's actually an Amazon Bin image data set containing 500,000 images from an Amazon fulfillment center. So an Amazon Bin? An, an Amazon Bin. <laughs> it's uh, our image format. Right. Um, through to data sets provided from NASA, um, satellite imagery, and so on. And also, there's a whole bunch of, I think, also web crawls out there that uh, have been also de yeah, deposited um, in there. Yeah, so 5 billion handy. web pages. So, you yeah, know, that's a few. Plenty of data to train your, you know, your models on. So just imagine what you could do with that. There's a, there's a lot of use cases. So, yeah, if you have a, you know, a, a data set need, you certainly may want to go and check out registry.opendata.aws. Yeah, and look, um, because they're on Amazon S3, you know, you can easily access them through a VPC private endpoint and mm. consume them within your account. But um, 
you know, even if you don't have a data set to contribute to this, you can, you know, provide value by, you know, simply forking an existing data set, maybe creating an application right. and contrib- contributing back to the GitHub repo. So what's in the repo? This is where you put your projects that have been forked off the AWS Labs um, registry? Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Sweet. Right. Um, so instructions on how to do this, you know, can are available on the GitHub AWS Labs Open Data Registry website. Awesome. So Shane, um, you know, a lot of our customers uh, love to only pay for what they need, right? And cloud is awesome for that. Um, what's happening in the uh, RI space at the moment? So this is about reserved instances. Yeah. So, you know, as a field SA, I'm constantly trying to find ways, you know, to optimize our customers' spend mm-hmm. so they spend less, um, you know, only spend, you know, what they need to spend. Exactly. And whilst it's great, you know, to ideally move up a stack to maybe like, you know, a NoSQL or potentially, you know, not having that relational databases, the stark reality is most stacks use a relational database. And sometimes it's hard to re-architect, right? It's hard to go back and pull the pull the thing apart, especially if you didn't build it, right? You bought oh. it off the shelf, you're kind of stuck with the database. Yeah, that commercial off-the-shelf software. Yeah. You know, whilst it's easy to say, hey, uh, you know, why don't you use uh, you know, a NoSQL database or... It's a no-go zone for some people. The, so the reality is you're kind of stuck. Yeah. Right? So... And what customers love to use is Amazon RDS, which is Amazon Relational Database Service, which provides you know a plethora of database engines that we manage to remove a lot of the undifferentiated heavy lifting in having to manage a database engine. Yeah, lots of customers have moved you know stuff that they had on premises into RDS. So we've got a you know a migration service that you can actually use. But uh, so once you're there, how do, how do I save money? So the news is that customers can now use AWS Cost Explorer to provide. RDS RI purchase recommendations in addition to the traditional Amazon EC2 recommendations. And, you know, looking through, you know, a typical customer bill, Amazon RDS is going to, and Amazon EC2 is going to constitute quite a substantial amount of, you know, your Amazon monthly bill. So, you know, if you can get those recommendations for, in order to create RIs, you know, that has the potential to save quite a bit of money. And an RI, for those of you that are unfamiliar with it, is basically a reserved instance where you can actually pay us a little bit uh, uh, up front and say, hey, we're going to be using this particular, in this case, RDS server for you know one or maybe three years. I mean, you have, there's different ways of paying for them. So we actually help you with making those recommendations via this tool. So Shane, so that's one way of uh, actually you know getting a cost reductions. Any tips you may have for our customers who may actually want to save money without necessarily buying RIs? Well, you could simply turn your database engine off. So maybe you've got that development environment or, you know, an environment that's being used for a project, spun up for a project. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, worth mentioning is the ability to turn RDS off for periods of up to seven days. Yeah, and look, we've, we've had this feature available for quite a while. And uh, yeah, it's worth calling out that you know, if you don't know, it's out there, it's available. And uh, But there are a couple of gotchas where there is. you can only have it turned off for a, what, seven days? It is seven days. So why seven days? So... You know, cloud security is a number one priority at AWS, mm-hmm. totally. which translates into patching. So if you turn an RDS instance off, after seven days, we will power it back on. We will apply the security and database patches for you, but that database engine will stay online. Very and, important call. Yes, it, you, we will actually turn it back on for you. One of the very few things that we do turn on. Mm. Yes. And there are also limitations around replicas, mirroring, and, you know, replication in general. So if this RDS instance is being used as a read replica or maybe in the Microsoft SQL sense using database mirroring, this will prevent you 
from being able to power off your database instance. Yeah, so the simplest way I like to look at the turning off your RDS instance, if it's a single AZ, so not non-multi-AZ instance, and it's not doing any of the replications or mirroring, uh, then it's a great candidate to be turned off, in particular, especially if it actually is used for dev test purposes. Very, very handy. Cool. Great one. Yeah, so look, something else worth calling out, and that is um, being certified. You know, we, we certainly know that if you are AWS certified, you know, you kind of know what you're talking about. So proofs in the pudding, go to the exams. Um, and we've also done some surveys. We actually found people who are AWS certified actually get paid more. They certainly do. Which is very cool. So I'm really pleased, pleased to say that um, we've now got another exam, and that's actually the AWS certified security uh, exam. So it's, it's a specialty exam, just to be just to be clear, um, but it's actually worth being aware that um, it's open to anyone who currently holds a cloud practitioner or an associate level certification. And we do actually recommend that if you do step up and have a go at, uh, take a swing at this exam, uh, you know, you have maybe five or so years of IT security experience in designing and implementing, you know, security solutions, hopefully in production, uh, and also hopefully at least two years or so of hands-on experience securing AWS workloads. Because uh, as you guys probably are aware, you know, there are lots of bells and whistles around locking things down at the network layer, uh, as well as in, uh, you know, a whole bunch of, you know, identity and access management f controls that we have in place, uh, which you can slice and dice in lots and lots of different ways. Yeah, Multi-account strategies, you name it. Yeah, and look, speaking of multi-accounts um, and you know identity and access management, we've also got a uh, new ability now to control via identity and access management access to which regions you can actually do stuff in. So that's really moving the dial from being reactive to being proactive. And this is a very common question that is asked by our customers. Yeah, lots of customers actually say, to, especially the larger customers, yeah. they go, hey, listen, um, we want to only let our developers uh, often due to regulatory and compliance reasons to keep the data onshore in a particular AWS region. So this, this new feature around IAM uh, now allows you to control um, through a you know essentially a key called the requested region attribute, right? To basically lock down your IAM policy so that you can control access to whichever region a user or a role can actually access actions. Yeah. So, so yeah, typically in the past, you know, you may have caught this after the fact, yeah. you might have had something, you know, post to a simple notification service topic and, you know, take action on this afterwards. Yeah, exactly. And look, uh, the, the thing here is that uh, quite often we, we get customers saying things like, hey, listen, um, I've just launched uh, all these instances, I can't see them. And in fact, by accident, they may have selected the wrong region, uh, which actually launched their instances. And sometimes there's a bit of a bill shock saying, hey, I, don't, I had no idea my developers have launched this elsewhere. So this now basically means that when you create those new user accounts um, or roles, in fact, um, in IAM, so I don't need access management, you can say, hey, developers, you now get to do all sorts of things uh, within reason, but they are only going to happen in you know whatever region of choice that is. Which for us, quite often here in Australia, would be the Sydney region. So very, very cool. Very, very cool. So how about IBM DB2? Is that cool, Pete? That is cool. I, I actually, I, I know, I like mainframes and I like, the, uh, you know, if you, you have to be a bit, of a bit of a historian to appreciate where we are today. Right? Let me tell you a story about mainframes, actually. Yeah. Um, so in a past life, I was working for an organization that managed their own data center. Mm -hmm. and There's a few of those around still, you know. There still is. <laughs> um, and the VESDA systems got tripped. 
Okay. And so for those who aren't aware, the, the Vesna systems are a fire suppression system that removes a lot of the oxygen in the air so fires can't propagate within your data center. Yeah, and it's an awful thing to experience if you happen to be locked in in the room where this thing kicks yeah, off. Yeah, I think it uh, shoots argon and... Yes, a um, bit of a gas to make sure it suppresses the fire. Yeah, okay. So but when these nozzles shoot out this air, it shoots out at such high velocity that um, you know, it often can cause damage to IT equipment via like an acoustic sound. Boom. Mm-hmm. So post this system tripping, um, we had failure of you know, various enterprise grade SANS, um, servers, but the trusty IBM iSeries mainframe kept on just going? kept on going. There yeah. were no problems with it at all. Yeah, look, I like ICUs. Actually, to geek out a bit more, I actually used to uh, uh, dive into those things in a past life. And they're really cool because if you ever uh, want to figure out what's going on in, in an iSeries, you can actually turn on module logging and it can get an incredible amount of, uh, of logging information. And actually, you know, I met, I met a CEO a few years ago who said to me, uh, you know, cloud is just like a mainframe. And in many ways, uh, you know, in right. hindsight, it's kind of interesting because uh, mainframes were the first to actually introduce time slicing for access to CPUs, right? So, uh, yeah, in virtualization, uh, they, were, they were the early, early, I guess, experiments, um, both in academia and then in the industry around being able to you know, create LPARs, logical uh, partitions, whole bunch of really cool stuff. So, so hang on, so what's this DB2 got to do with, yeah, well, with DMS, like, you know, our, our database migration service? If I, <laughs> if I need someone to create LPARs for me, you are the guy to go to, Pete. <laughs> All right, so getting back on track here, DMS, our database migration service, has recently updated itself to provide support for IBM DP2. So, you know, to date, DMS has been used to migrate more than 70,000 databases. How how many? Yeah, 70,000. Wow. You know, it is a really great simple service to use. You know, provide one database in and another database engine, or it could be, you know, um, heterogeneous or homogeneous database migration. And that's pretty cool because you can actually do schema conversions. We have a you know the schema conversion tool that actually helps you move from one data engine to another, and uh, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, and the schema conversion tool yeah supports IBM DB2. Perfect, perfect. So 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 those of you who are running DB2, and, we, and I have customers, and you have too, yeah. who are running that uh, successfully uh, on EC2, you, you can actually now move it to basically other database engines like perhaps what Amazon Aurora. Perhaps Amazon Aurora, which is our fastest growing AWS service. Um, you know, fantastic, simply MySQL and Postgres compliant. So how do I, how do I find out more? If I want to go ahead and uh, move my DB2 by DMS to Aurora, perhaps? Simply visit the DMS product page or log into the AWS console and, you know, perhaps try it out. Cool. Sweet. Well, guys, uh, wow, we're out of time. So uh, we better close this off, right? We, we, we covered a lot today, um, you know, talking about the... Uh, optimize CPUs for EC2 where you can slice and dice really your vCPUs. Yeah. So that's a pretty, I think, game-changing thing. That and is, that's a really big piece. I think we're going to call it the uh, the Lego block slicing and dicing. It's is that a, a fair call? It is moving from maybe Lego to Lego technique. Um, <laughs> you know, it's actually something I'm really excited to talk about, talk to my customers about. Mm. Yeah, and look, there's a lot of discussions around licensing. More and more we're seeing, you know, people wanting to move traditional licensed software, which perhaps was never designed for cloud. So this is certainly going to help with the, uh, the licensing conversations. Um, you know, the whole Beanstalk and autoscaling, I think it's really cool. Um, you know, yeah. cloning of databases with no production impacts, isn't that phenomenal? 
and you know building these amazing now you know endpoints with private link for you know AWS services, but also if you're a SaaS provider, being able to you know drop your you know IP endpoint into well, your hosted service, yeah, is it's phenomenal. It's increasing your security posture by you know only exposing what you need to expose. Yeah, not very impressive. And uh, Rhoda, I mean, uh, I think that the, the, the trick is uh, go check out Rhoda. It's this open registry of data sets. Um, yeah, I'm gonna have to go away and find some cool. Any, any data sets that really jumped out for you? I really like the AWS. Um, being mm-hmm. image because who would have thought we sold so many things on Amazon? Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, it's great for like machine learning if you want to do convolutional um, and transference learning. Uh, this could be a really interesting data set to play with. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, from a security perspective, you know, this whole ability now to lock down which APIs for a service I can actually consume within each which whichever region of choice I choose. I think it's going to be kind of interesting. So definitely for those of you security guys out there, uh, go check that out. Um, well worth having a closer look at. Right. And uh, also... That's only when you've got time from having a break from studying for the security specialty exam. <laughs> great segue, great segue. And, uh, and that's also if you're not moving lots of uh, your DB2 databases via uh, the, uh, the database migration service. So guys, look, thank you for tuning in. Shane, thanks for joining me as always. Uh, always a pleasure to have you around. Thank you very much. And maybe you can have better jokes next time. You didn't like my C-sharp joke. Ah, maybe. I'm a Microsoft guy at heart. All right, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Look forward to having you back in the next episode. So bye for now. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www. AWSTechChat.com